You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's uh, your rehearsal room like? Do you have a, it's a change for each show? Is there, do you have a, like your first day, the first day of rehearsal for a new musical? Or let's say play, because musicals are their own, their own thing. Yeah. And you probably sit in the back room while they teach music. Yeah, exactly. What do you do in a first day of a new play? Honestly, I hate the first day of a new play or a musical because it's the day that. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, it's Ken. In just a few moments, you're going to hear from the super successful Broadway director, Jason Moore. He's going to answer my favorite question on my podcast so far, what makes something funny? So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let me tell you about a photographer that we just used on a project. And by the way, all the sponsors that we have here, we use them. We use them. That's why we let them sponsor us. Uh, I wouldn't be putting my mouth where my sponsors are without actually utilizing their goods and services. So we know you are getting quality stuff. And quality is exactly what Will Jellicorse, a new photographer in the city, provides. So Will, he's based right here in the city. He's also a videographer as well as a photographer. Got a couple studios, both Times Square and in Gramercy, actually. He specializes in actor headshots, writer headshots. Writers should have headshots, by the way. A little digression. He also produces short-form narratives, beautiful monologue videos for actors, all sorts of stuff. He's got some cool spring specials and packages available. By the way, that's translation for very affordable, as in cheap stuff right now. High quality, cheap. That's the way to go. If you're interested in looking for new photographs or some video stuff, and you all know that marketing is all about video these days, check out willjellicorse.com will as in will shakespeare w-i-l-l jellicorse j-e-l-l-i-c-o-r-s-e dot com or contact hello at willjellicorse.com for booking inquiries and get this he will do a free consultation today free so take advantage of that google his name visit willjellicorse.com get some new photos or a new video uh, and you'll be better off for it and now on with jason moore Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport. And one of the fun things uh, I love about doing this podcast is getting to talk to people I met when I was coming up, and now they are big, big stars. I met today's guest in the basement of what was then the Ford Center for the Performing Arts uh, when I was the associate company manager of Ragtime, and this gentleman was joining the touring company of Ragtime as the resident director, is that right? Yeah, I joined as the third resident director, and it was going to be the Chicago company of Ragtime that I was going to be a part of. The Chicago company. That's where we met, and today you're going to meet him. Please welcome director Jason Moore. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Ken. Nice to be here. So Jason was a Tony nominee for his direction of Avenue Q. He's directed on Broadway Steel Magnolias, Shrek, Fully Committed, and most recently The Share Show, which I just saw a couple weeks ago and is super, super fun. Interestingly enough, we're going to talk a lot about this. He has a career in film and television as well, including directing those fantastic, the first film, Pitch Perfect, executive produced the second one, also Sisters with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. So let's start actually there. You started in television, is that right? I always knew I wanted to do both. So I was a film major in school and I was a theater major and ended up and then was in the musical theater program and the writing program, realizing I was just sort of creating directing one-on-one for myself. And I actually went to L.A. first out of school uh, and worked at CAA and worked for a big director named Harold Becker as his assistant. So I kind of have always been trying to have both sides of the career. So a lot of people will tell people coming up, like, you have to pick a track, like one or the other, and do that and only that. You didn't do that. How did you accomplish that. Yes. And that's exactly what people said. Like you can only do one or the other. It's an East coast versus West coast kind of mentality. And then I looked around and, and that was about the decade that Sam Mendes, Stephen Daldry and Rob Marshall all sort of proved that that wasn't really the case. And I think also as things got more content, people started to see value in crossover and directors, whether you could speak to actors because you were from theater, which is kind of an oversimplification, or uh, because you sort of had this different set of skills that people were interested in. But it was really those three directors that I kind of looked up to and thought, okay, it's possible. So you start, you were in Hollywood first, Mm -hmm. obviously, and starting to dabble in in television. And from what I have read and remember from us chatting about way back when, you you were working I mean, you were directing some good TV. Well, no, that TV came later, actually. So I went out to L.A. and I worked for a guy named Harold Becker on a movie called City Hall with Al Pacino. And I was in L.A. and I was trying to figure it out and I wasn't very happy and I missed the theater. And very strangely, Frank Galati, who directed Ragtime, where we met, was my faculty advisor at Northwestern. And that company, Ragtime, started in America, in Los Angeles. So very, very strangely, and this may be the most weird thing, is I got a theater job in New York by being in L.A. So to me, that was kind of like the sign, okay, it's time to go to theater, because if you're getting a theater job in L.A. that takes you to New York, do it. I sold everything, 
I had came to New York, met with Mr. Garth Rubinsky with his feet up on the desk, looking over a view much like yours, Ken. And uh, that was my first job in New York. So then you you did that Chicago Company of Ragtime. Uh, and then, so what was the theater track? And how did you get pulled back out west? So Ragtime was, uh, I had that job. I was going to open the Chicago company. It was actually the first time I'd ever had a job and knew I had income coming. So I was going to go on this vacation. And as you may remember, because you were there, I read on the cover of the New York Times that Mr. Dabrinsky had been escorted out of the building. Yes, his feet were no longer in a desk. They were yes, they, that is right. They were in a feet different cups. kind of desk. So I thought, oh boy, I've Bet I don't have a job because I'm the I was the newest hired right like for latest hired first fired, so I canceled my trip. I waited six long weeks to find out that I in fact did not have a job. So the job that had moved me to New York dumped me in New York on unemployment and on a couch. So, but once I had done that very specific kind of directing, associate directing, which was based more on a sort of British and Canadian model, um, not many shows had those at the time. But Cameron Macintosh had them. And that was around the time that Les Mis was turning over. At the 10th anniversary, they did kind of a re-shuffle. Re and so I wrote him a letter and said, you know, I've done this very specific kind of associate directing on a big musical based on a novel, like Ragtime. And uh, that got me an interview and I got that job. And that was like my bread and butter day job, for lack of a better term, for years and years while I was pursuing new plays and musicals and then also eventually got the opportunity to go start, start directing television then. So it was while I was doing Les Mis. Do you think that's the best track for directors that w or want to be Broadway directors, that they should be an associate first? Uh, now there are so many different kinds of associates. There are big shows that require them, and then there are assistants who are sort of associates because they work with the same director all the time. I think being an assistant or associate can be helpful mostly to see other people direct, right? Because if you're a director, you rarely get to see other people direct unless you're assisting them. So that can be a really helpful thing to see. But now there's a lot of those positions. So in the day where it might have put you kind of in a really a special seat, it's still a very special seat and very talented people do it. But I think there are lots of ways to become directors. That's in a way the most sort of clear-cut one, be an assistant, and maybe someone will notice you for your own talent. But there are many other ways to do it. That was the way I did it. So then you jump back to Hollywood a bit, start doing some film. How did you not get stuck there? Stuck in Hollywood? You know, because I hear, listen, everyone talks, so we see this happen with our writers all the yes, time. They of course. pop here, Absolutely. they go out there, and all of a sudden they're writing for television movies, and we never get them back. Isn't that the truth? All the best playwrights, they get right onto a show, and I always say, please keep writing plays. And a lot of them do and want to, but then they get on a TV schedule and they can't. Well, I was, I, I mean, theater really, I guess, could be my, say, this is my first love. And I'm, I love part of the reason I didn't get stuck out there is because since I moved to LA first, I knew I didn't like it out there. So I much prefer New York. And I think that might be a big part of it. Um, while I was finishing Pitch Perfect and doing a few other things, I did live in LA for a little while longer, but I could go back and forth. But um, I, I'll, again, I always wanted to do both. And I kind of, I, I, I don't get bored of either one, but I like switching it up. So it's nice to be able to choose choose the different ways. When you were, well, let's just stick on the TV. What what do they, what do they have in common? Directing for television and directing for Broadway. Or let me, I, yeah, for theater. Uh, well, I mean, I think directing in all mediums is sort of the same thing. As you're trying to find the essence of something human, and then you're trying to make it seem 
realistic enough to move people or make them laugh. And it's just the scale of the way you're doing it. Are you making someone understand it in the back row of an 1800-seat house? Or are you making someone understand it by putting a camera right in front of someone's face? So the technical elements and the scope of the work is very different. But the core of what it is in terms of about storytelling is the same. I mean, one of the interesting things that's the most similar between television, to answer that specific question, and theater is that the writer is at the top of the pyramid, right? In theater, the writer retains their own copyright. They are ultimately you know, the, the last word, although you hope every collaboration allows everyone to have last words if it's required, but that's, what's true in television. Also, they don't own the copyright, but they are the, they are the God. They're the last word in a TV show. What's something that the theater can learn from television or film that they actually do better than we do. They keep television is about volume. And so they make a lot of TV. And so you don't get too precious about any one episode. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Um, I mean, you know, people may argue slightly differently about that. But one of the things that I like about TV and that many people do is just the volume of it, the amount that you're making. So in us in theater, we don't, you know, you get a very short, concentrated bit of time to work on something, workshop something, preview something. It's very expensive. And therefore that's part of the issue. But I think the best processes for theater allow for a lot of revisions and a lot of chances for mistakes. So that when you do whole thing, you know, maybe you're finally going to bat on Broadway that you've really, you've churned out enough material and understanding that you get the best version of what it's going to become. So you mentioned while you're doing Les Mis, you were looking for new plays and musicals. What did you mean by that? And why were you looking for new plays and musicals? Well, Les Mis was paying my bills and I was learning a lot about um, how Broadway works and equity rules and costumes and understudies. I was also learning a lot about working with actors because one of the, one of the great things about that associate job is that you're taking a role that you know works, right? You know Fantine works, you know Valjean works, and you're putting in a new actor. So you get to see how the same role can work on different kinds of actors. So that was a great day job I was learning from, but I always knew I wanted to direct my own material. So I was trying to meet playwrights. I've met a lot, some of them through that job um, and trying to do as many readings and as many workshops as I could. Um, and eventually uh, that led me to a little play called The Crumple Zone, which was my first play in New York that um, ran for a little while. And then uh, through all the processes of doing all those different meetings, I met most of the key players of Avenue Q, which is how I got that job. When you're meeting with all these playwrights and, tr and you just said trying to direct every reading or workshop mm -hmm. that you could, how, I'm just thinking about your question about volume of television, how concerned were you about the quality of the work in, in terms, like, were you more free, like, I just want to do everything and anything because I can learn from even something that isn't so great that I don't see a future with? Yes. I, and I tell that to especially young directors, and I mean that literally, like, if you have time and you're working a bartending job and you are really getting your feet wet, direct everything because directing is essentially someone giving you a lot of resources. And the younger you are, the less experience you have, the less likely that is to happen because those resources are precious. Therefore, just to get the practice of making mistakes and knowing how to talk to actors and making mistakes about talking to actors. I mean, you don't want to work on something that's going to make you unhappy or it feels like a stinker, but you don't have to be concerned about the longevity of something early on. Directing is 
you can only practice directing by directing. And in the early days, you just try and do as much. I think you should do as much as you can um, because you're going to learn something. So you're ready when something like Avenue Q comes along. Mm -hmm. And how did it come to you? Like, what was there when you jumped on that? Project. Well, I had directed, this is one of those kind of, I call it a critical mass story when you've been toiling long enough. And after all the years of time that you kind of, something happens, which is I met Jeff Witte through friends and directed a reading of a play of his. I had met Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks through the BMI music program where I had um, assembled like a kind of a, a night of, you know, new, new writers for them. I had interviewed with Jeffrey Seller and Kevin to be the associate director on Lava M because I had been with Baz Luhrmann because I had been an associate director before. And I had met with Robin Goodman through other, other friends and other scripts. So I also had TV experience and that, that, that Avenue Q was developed as a TV show. Originally it was like a comedy central. It was essentially sketches. And when Jeffrey and Kevin licensed the material to develop it into a musical, it was a TV show. So I actually kind of came in with a certain set of language skills, camera shots, animation that we ended up using some in the show that I think a lot of other people may not have had. Also, I'd had a lot of development experience doing other new plays, but also because I was years working for a film director and reading every single screenplay that came to the door, I had more experience also in just in terms of storytelling, I think. Um, so kind of a critical mass of things allowed me to walk into that room in Avenue Q and have a certain talent set, but also maybe even just feel comfortable because I knew the people in the room. When you read that script or heard some of that music, did you know what it could be? Or was it just another one of those hundreds of readings and workshops and things that you were just churning out? No, we knew Avenue Q was special. In the day, there was no plot. There was just sketches, much like Sesame Street. Uh, so the songs really stood on their own. They weren't in any other kind of context except for the comedy setup. And we saw them countlessly kill comedically in front of an audience many, many times. So we knew that that was unusual to have that kind of comic song where people actually laugh out loud. Also, the puppets instantly gave it an unusual physical, visual take. But we weren't sure that the story itself, the whole purpose story was created later, much later, actually. We weren't sure if that would work. And ultimately, funny songs and charming puppets are great. But I think what made Avenue Q special uh, and resonate is that it has sort of some depth in its storytelling in a deceptive way. Now that you could be a bit more selective in terms of what you choose to work on, what makes you jump onto a project now? What makes me jump onto a project now most often is, simply put, is the writer, the voice of the writer. It's that they're trying to say something important, that they have a funny voice, a unique voice, um, that they have, maybe they're a voice of some buddy on a marginalized community or something to say that most of us don't understand. So it really comes down to who is that writer. It doesn't mean the script is always going to be great or right or move on, but that was where it all starts ultimately. And so it, it's with that. And then with the musical, it's with the music because you can't have a great musical without great music. You just mentioned something about a funny voice, and you've done a lot of comedy. Interesting that you started on Ragtime and Les Mis, these very, very serious, serious things. <laughs> very serious. Uh, and then, of course, Avenue Q, and even the movies that Pitch Perfect, and Sisters. What makes something funny? How, how's that for a question? 
Like, what do you look for to mine comedy? I had a professor in college by name Bud Byer who would boil it down into something that I have actually, that stays with me and I think about all the time. And this is sort of an unusual answer is that comedy is usually about surprise. So you think that something is going to happen and something else happens. Someone falls on a banana peel. It's because they're surprised the banana peel was there and you didn't see it coming as an audience. Or the answer to a funny question is something you don't expect but still rings true. So comedy is inherently about surprise. So if you're looking at for a new comedy voice, like you can... If you see the joke coming and you know what the joke is, you and I probably aren't going to laugh at it because we see a lot of those kind of jokes. If you're surprised by the joke, if you're surprised by the observation, it makes you laugh. And it and that is at its core, I believe that's what comedy is, which is it's something, it's not just that it's entertaining, it's that it's surprising and therefore enlightening and therefore entertaining. What's uh, your rehearsal room like? Do you have a, is it change for each show? Is there, do you have a, like your first day, the first day of rehearsal for a new musical, or let's say play, because musicals are their own, their own thing, thing. Yeah. and you probably sit in the back room while they teach music. Yeah, exactly. What do you do in a first day of a new play? Honestly, I hate the first day of a new play or a musical, because it's the day that everybody descends, and people are kind of dressed up, and there's like some weird muffins, and people are trying to figure out who everybody is, and how they all fit together. Once that goes away, maybe once you've done even your first read-through, then you start to get into what the real stuff is, right? Which is the privacy to and the safety to start to experiment and try new things. So first day is never really my favorite. It's trying to get through all of the awkwardness and artifice of those first meetings to create something where you're like, okay, here's who I am. Here's what we're working on. Here's the script. Let's open ourselves up and find what it is. And that is what I try and do in the rehearsal room is make a place that feels safe for people to take risks emotionally and then take risks comedically because there's, you know, it's very vulnerable to put yourself out there emotionally, but most people know how to do that. It's a whole other kind of vulnerability to try and do something that's funny and not be funny in front of a lot of people. So it's, it's safety ultimately what I try and get for whether it's a play or a, or a large musical. It's easier to create that safety for a small play, obviously, because there are fewer people to sort of, infract on the on the vibe of the room how do you know that those artists can do that thing during an audition process which seems like you could get what 15 20 minutes with people at a callback like yeah i mean what for? auditions are so tough because they are they are inherently trying to i mean all theater is trying to create something authentic in a highly inauthentic situation Auditions are the most inauthentic of any situation because they're talking to a spot on the wall or, or you can see everybody. There's no scenery. So, you know, part of what good actors and some good actors are not good auditioners either. So it's sometimes interesting to think about what that distinction is, but are able to somehow bring some version of their authentic self into a very strange and authentic situation. And sometimes you can only just smell it and see it and you have to call them back and Maybe do a work session where you make it feel safer or something. But you're really just trying to look for who is that actor and what do they have that connects to the character, either because of who they are or because of something they know, that they know something about the character and they're able to show you a glimmer. And it's usually just a glimmer, but that's enough to be interested and go deeper and give someone a call back and figure out who can give you the most surprising version of what you thought you were looking for. 
you had every single actor in the world in one room and could give them one tip about auditioning, what would you tell them? Every single actor in the world. Wow. Um, any actor, I would. It is. It's that. It's be find a way to be authentic. If you mess up, acknowledge it. If you're nervous, acknowledge it, because the authenticity of yourself is your biggest asset. And whether or not you memorize all your lines or can hit the note or go emotionally deep enough, none of that's really going to happen in an audition. But again, it's that sense of like, who's that person? How do they resonate with the character? And do I want to be in a room with them for ten hours a day? So authenticity, genuineness, even if it's messy, is always more interesting to me than something that's refined, polished, or perfect. You know, it's been almost, you know, it's been over 20 years since the basement of the Ford Center or about. Yeah, yeah. Has the role of the director changed since you started? Do you find yourself having to do different things now than you did even for Avenue Q? Demands on you different? Producers require something different? writers? That's an interesting question. It's sort of hard to say because I don't have the purview maybe that even you have where you get to see how different people function. I mean, I, I do say that working on Broadway, you have, you have to have much more of an awareness of budget and, and the way things work. I think you do, but also you have to have that in filmmaking as well. Like if you are not counting your hours and know that every minute that ticks by costs somebody $15,000, you're not going to get hired again. So there is kind of a, there's an awareness about the business side of things that I think that certainly I've tried to have and embrace. And it actually helps me as a director get the things I want, right? Because I understand what things cost and I might not know how to negotiate for something. Uh, I don't know if that's true for everyone, but that certainly has been something I've had to learn and constantly have to remind myself. You obviously just worked on this very big budget bio musical. There's a lot of bio musicals coming out or have been out. How was that for you knowing that the score was written that you couldn't go, Hey, I'm, let's, you know what we need here? We need a song that does this, which you I'm sure yeah. have done many times yeah. in your career with other yeah. musicals. Did you find that restrictive or actually freeing because you're like, well, we can't write new music, so let's just figure yeah. this shit out? That's a great question because it cuts both ways, right? Part of the reason I think we like bio-musicals or jukebox musicals or whatever people want to call them, catalog musicals, is that something you're looking for music that works for a musical. And if that person has had a career, probably some of their music works. So, so you already have songs that work, which is a big achievement. As you point out, though, and it's also especially true for pop lyrics, which is very true for Cher's lyrics, is they tend to be very simplistic and vague uh, so that they can have the sort of largest purview. So depending on what you're trying to do with the song, it can either be very freeing because you're like, this is awesome because everybody loves the song. I love the song and I get to decorate it a certain way. Or it can be frustrating because you kind of have something that almost fits in the whole of the story that you want to tell, but doesn't quite. And then you do things like clever Rick Ellis does and maybe you get permission to change lyrics. And then in some rare cases, the actual song will actually fit the moment that you're trying to dramatize. And, you know, it, it's rare that it's as many as in say an original musical, but those are kind of the three variations that you're always trying to figure out. You'll notice we don't actually do many full songs in share. Uh, and that's partially because we were trying to make them, fit the story more. Also, Cher has so many songs to fit into a show that we were like, we can't do all of every song. Let's just take the verse that works for this moment. You know, I always talk to directors and ask them about 
when they start working with writers. One question I don't know that I've ever asked before is, when do you start bringing designers in to your process? Is it early? Is it late? Is it mid? How important is that to you? It's a great question. I think, I mean, design, I think the best musicals, right? That's why we look back on the Hal Prince musicals and the Sondheim musicals. It seems like the original production it's so seamless, like it couldn't have been any other way. And that is because there's a, some sort of integration with everything. So I think it's good to get design in as early as possible because it actually will influence the writing. On Avenue Q, we actually, I had the idea to do the set, like it was based on Laugh-In, which is all those doors from the 1960s you know, and 70s. People would pop out and in. And Jeff Whitty can write a punchline and that door pops and it gives you a it gives you a comedic pop. And so that really, the design of that really influenced the, what we were doing. And then in something like um, Share, which has like 61 locations, you have to go, this is a real challenge of this show and it's going to move really quickly. Let's make sure that the physical production can support the script we're writing. And having smart designers, I mean, they are great dramaturgs because they do tend to distill things down do very simple ideas and that kind of thematic simple idea is sometimes what gets lost in all the noise of a big show. So it's nice to have that other voice and collaborator, collaborator there. Yeah. I'll never forget the first time a designer gave me a dramaturgical note and I was like, why are you, Oh wait, of course. Like you're looking at it from a totally different perspective and it was so, it was Eugene Lee, of course. Of course. You yes. Know, <laughs> everything and it's been around, yeah. but yeah, they, they know theatrical storytelling because they have to move to all those 61 locations. Yeah. And they're in they're very invested in it too. So they're kind of they're this interesting distance because they didn't actually create it themselves, but they also get to know it very intimately. So those of us who get to know it very intimately sometimes lose perspective or distance. And those people who are distant, but aren't emotionally involved, maybe don't really care <laughs> that much, you know? So all shows can't run forever, and often they will, more often than not, they will run for a shorter period of time than we like them yes, to. Yes, true uh, that. How, how do you deal with that when something you've worked with, worked on very hard, has a shorter life or isn't received as well as you'd hoped? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it is, look, I always say if, if we weren't doing theater for audiences to laugh or applaud or cry at what we're doing, we would just do it in our living room with no audience, right? So all theater artists, me included, care about connecting with an audience. So if you don't connect with an audience, whether that audience is a critic or just the crowd ticket buyers in general, or even the crowds that do buy a ticket and are disappointed, it's it, it, it's disappointing on all kinds of levels. I mean, more than anything now, because I've had enough of those as well as successes, is you kind of go, okay, what do I, how do I, what did I learn from this one? What do I take into the next thing and try and metabolize it? I mean, it's kind of like any disappointment or loss. That's what I, in life you try and do, but it still stings a little bit. If you have something that you want to connect and it doesn't in the way that you either intended or hoped for. What's the one that disappointed you the most? That you were like, oh, dang it. I can't believe that one didn't work. And what did you learn from it? I think that my answer to that question is probably Shrek the musical is because I think that show from a writing standpoint it is really smart and really special and storytelling wise is thematically special. And it's been now done in every high school and every church group. And so with a kind of a baseball cap with Shrek ears on it, that thing has really survived because Janine and, and, and David created something 
really wonderful. But somehow people weren't able to see that, and whether that was our production or people had an, an opinion about Shrek before they walked in, I think maybe all those things were true, that I was, I was disappointed and surprised. And it was also probably a situation where I, th I did think that it would, you know, have a really big audience. I was right because it does have this incredible life. It just wasn't the one that we were expecting on Broadway. Yeah, well, often I think that happens more often than not. We, yeah. we think of successes here. In fact, there I just wrote this the other day. The touring market alone has yeah. so many more people seeing yeah. shows than Broadway ever will. Yep. Just, and Shrek was a big, huge hit in London and still tours there. So it's interesting. It's always, it feels more and more, I don't know if you feel this, like what works on Broadway sometimes feels more and more random to me than it ever has. And I can't put my finger on why that is, but certainly anecdotally agents and friends like you, I, it, there's a, that's not completely upside down, but there is something very hard to predict about uh, how something gets ultimately taken by audiences and by critics. Yeah, which to your point, I love this comparison to television where it becomes more about volume. We just have to keep doing keep stuff because you never know yeah. what's going to hit. Yeah, keep keep making things, yeah. right? Like that's the that was the that's the advice for the the young director. Just keep making things, and it's the advice I have to tell myself, even when I feel a little tired or bruised. Which is like, keep going, make something, because there is kind of a special alchemy to theater that's difficult to capture. It's especially true for musicals, and so keep going. Do you read reviews? I recently learned that it's fine not to read them. I scan them and I get the basic idea. And then, you know what I've actually done is I've sometimes gone back to read reviews for shows long after, and they're actually more interesting because I'm not emotionally invested anymore. And I'm actually able to see, was that reviewer helping us? Was he trying to, he or she trying to really give us critical feedback or what did it feel more sort of clever and sort of like emotional, like just sort of like crushing. So, uh, I, I don't, I read them a lot less now. Um, but, uh, I've gotten into this funny habit of reading old ones because I think it's again, illuminating to what did you think you were doing and what came across the footlights? That's a great little tip there. Set a calendar alarm for a year yeah, after exactly. your show opens. Read reviews yeah. for show that opened last year. Yeah. Uh, any little life hacks or tips that keeps you going and keeps you making things? You, uh... The life hack that keeps me going is also to step away, which is I just did these two musicals back to back and I was, I'm, I'm, my, my body is tired. It's like shooting a movie. They're, they're really, it's tiring work because it's stressful and it's, but it's also exhilarating, so you have adrenaline and stuff pumping through your blood all the time. But I do try and I go away. I have a little place near the water where I like go and stare. So I think sometimes, like especially in the world of screens and so much stimulation, like staring and sunsets, that's kind of how I keep going. I think people forget that as a director in that period, you're all one. You're always on, mm -hmm. right? You always have to be there and two everyone needs something from you all the time yeah yeah I, yeah it's part of that's just replenishing you know some people maybe i think are very i don't know it'd be interesting to ask other directors some of their some of them i think are very invigorated by that and some of them are drained by it although you probably be hard to tell who was who but uh yeah, yeah i'm gonna ask joe mantella next time i see him Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and grants you one wish. Is this the Will Smith version or which Aladdin are we talking Whichever about? Whichever one. Because it'll change. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. 
What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway that makes you angry, frustrated, could have you jumping up and down that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? It would be truly magic for this to be the case, but that audiences could sit down with, to see a show with no expectation that you could, they could either have word of mouth or reviews, or they already have an opinion about, you know, what the show is because they've seen the movie is, could you create a situation where people could just enjoy the thing in front of them unrelated to other things, which is why it will never happen is that, but I do think that some of my biggest frustrations are when the audience has already made a decision about what they're seeing. And sometimes that works to our advantage, by the way, like, I, I mean, share good example, we're taking advantage of the audience's goodwill towards share. Right. But it also kind of works the other way, uh, as, as often, if not more often. And so if anyone, audience members might enjoy themselves or critics might not think a certain way if they could truly be open to what's in front of them. You know, my favorite audiences are the student matinees because they're 14 year olds from the Bronx who've maybe never seen a show or only seen the couple. And so their expectation is so different. They're so much sort of more open to whatever you want to give them. And it's that actually renews my kind of like the spirit of wonder, which is like to come into a theater for the first time and see something and not know anything about it and to be surprised by it and delighted by it. That's what I wish that genie would bring. It's such a great thing. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, not a kid. I would think I was just moved to New York. I was in college and someone, or maybe late high school, but someone said to me, I said, I saw a show. And they said, what did you, was it good? And I literally said these words, well, it was Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. It can't be bad. Yeah. And it just, of course, I was a little naive at the time, yeah. but also it was just, I found something good no matter yeah. what I was seeing. Yeah. yeah. That's a good way to put it. Like not every show can and should be a Tony Award winner, a Pulitzer Prize winner, go down in history, in the history books. There's something people are expressing themselves. And if you can get it, what the writer or the actor or the director or the producer is trying to sort of put out in the world, I mean, that's really what we're doing, right? It's connecting. And so maybe instead of comparing it to, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winner, just let it be its own thing yeah it's it's so i'm trying to think about other industries now and think about like eating you would never compare applebee's yeah. to like per se yeah. and sometimes applebee's is great like you just yeah. need some chips and salsa yeah yeah now just go to a show and enjoy it i mean i guess that's you know it's maybe that's easy for us to say or people to say who see a lot of shows if you spend a lot of money to see a show you know you maybe you have a different set of expectations all right, well, you heard Jason go out there, see your next show with no expectations. <laughs> You're guaranteed <laughs> to have to a good time. Have joy, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. For those of you out there, thank you for being here. Go see Share, and we will see you here next time. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 